You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 90. Last episode, we talked a lot about the events leading up to the British and French agreeing to attack on both sides of the River Somme in the summer of 1916. We also went into some detail about how both the French and Germans were preparing to play their parts in the coming attack. This week, we will spend the entire episode discussing the British, their plans, and their efforts at preparing themselves for what would be by far the largest attack launched by the British up to this point in the war, and I think in the entire history of the British Empire. It would involve 20 divisions, and this large number of troops would be utilizing a massive number of men who had volunteered after the war had begun. This is an important fact. Because in many of the stories after the war, and all of the stories really that really attempt to dig down into it, the experience of the British troops, coupled with some questionable decisions during the planning process, would be considered huge factors in the coming disaster that would be July the 1st, 1916. Before we go any further, I would like to thank Nick for his donation to the podcast, and Skip for deciding to become a supporter on Patreon. You can find out about how you can get access to special members-only episodes by going to patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar. Also, since this is the 90th episode, we're coming dangerously close to that nice round 100 number. So if you have any questions that you'd like me to answer or any small topics that you'd like me to think about, I would love to do them for episode 100. You can send me questions via email at historyofthegreatwar at outlook.com or contact me on Twitter or Facebook or really any of the 400 different ways that I'm out there on the internet. Before we get to the planning, I realize that I completely forgot to give any sort of introduction to the area of the front on either side of the Somme River last week. So I'm going to rectify this mistake early in this episode by taking some time to discuss some of the geographical attributes of the area around the Somme River. If you just look at a map, the area to the north and south of the river looked like pretty decent country to launch an attack in. The area was a rolling chalk plain that made it for perfect digging conditions and did not have any massive changes in elevation. 
Most of the area was also nice and dry, except for right by the river, which was great when compared to other areas that the British were launching attacks in in Flanders, you know, throughout the entire war. The river in this area was also quite slow moving, with a wide marshy bank, which made any action right by the river impossible, but did not have much of an effect once you got away from the river, even a couple hundred yards. There were a series of hills and valleys with spurs sticking out from the main German line and pointing to the west. If you put your hand down on a table and spread out your fingers, you get the basic idea, although they were not quite as pronounced, of course. There had been little change in the positioning of the lines in this sector since they had been settled down in 1914, and this meant that the Germans occupied the high ground and the British and French were forced to look up at them. The Germans had not made a perfectly straight front throw, and they had arranged their positions to always take advantage of elevation changes. The Entente then did not always push their front right up into those valleys, you know, between the fingers. That would would have been quite silly. And this meant that there was a wide variation in distances between the two sets of trenches along the front. Here is Martin Middlebrook discussing the arrangement. Quote, A series of valleys and spurs running at right angles to the front. In every valley, the German trenches ran back, keeping to the high ground, and on every spur there was either a fortified village or a redoubt. An attacker faced a dreadful dilemma. He could make a short but dangerous and uphill direct assault on the spurs, or a longer approach along the naked floors of the valleys, being overlooked on two sides and with an enemy trench waiting at the far end of the valley. Typical of these valleys were sausage and mash on either side of the main road with a village on the spur between them. No man's land was 700 yards wide in Mash Valley and nearly as much in sausage. Between them, where the spur pushed right up to the British trenches, the adversaries were only 50 yards apart. On this front was the British Expeditionary Force, or BEF and it was still under the command of Douglas Haig. He had taken over from Sir John French and since that time had overseen the massive expansion of the BEF from just a few corps to now a huge army. While some things can be criticized about Haig, he was a pretty good organizer, and this was shown on the Somme, which would be the largest military campaign ever undertaken by the British Army. We have discussed Haig before, so I don't think he needs a huge introduction. But sometimes I just run into quotes in my sources that I wish I would have had earlier in this series. This very lengthy quote from the psalm, The Darkest Hour on the Western Front, by Peter Hart, is precisely one of them. In this book, Hart quotes Brigadier General John Charteris when he describes Haig's daily routine, which he apparently followed almost every single day for his entire tenure as Commander-in-Chief of the BEF. Again, this is a pretty long quote, but stick with me here. Quote, Punctually at 8.25 each morning, Haig's bedroom door opened and he walked downstairs. In the hall was a barometer, and he inevitably stopped in front of the instrument to tap it, though he rarely took any particular note of the reading. He then went for a short four minutes walk in the garden. At 8.30, precisely, he came into the mess for breakfast. If he had a guest present, he always insisted on serving the guest before he helped himself. He talked very little, and generally confined himself to asking his personal staff what their plans were for the day. 
At nine o'clock, he went into his study and worked until eleven or half past. At half past eleven, he saw army commanders, the heads of the departments, general headquarters, and others whom he might desire to see. At one o'clock, he had lunch, which only lasted half an hour, and then he either motored or rode to the headquarters of some army or corps or division. Generally, when returning from these visits, he would arrange for his horse to meet the car so that he could travel the last three or four miles on horseback. When not motoring, he always rode in the afternoon, accompanied by an aide-de-camp and his escort of the 17th Lancers, without which he never went out for a ride. Always on the return journey from his ride, he would stop about three miles from home and hand his horse over to a groom and walk back to headquarters. On arrival there, he would go straight up to his room, have a bath, and do his physical exercises, and then change into some slacks. From then until dinner time at 8 o'clock, he would sit at his desk and work, and he was always available if any of his staff or guests wished to see him. He never objected to interruptions at this hour. At 8 o'clock, he dined. After dinner, which lasted about an hour, he returned to his room and worked until a quarter to 11, end quote. I find such a detailed and steadfast routine to be interesting, especially in such a stressful situation like leading an army in the First World War. I think at times the generals during the war get heavily criticized for their routines that they kept, with many feeling that they were too detached from the front. And and to be clear, I think they were indeed too detached, at least mentally, and did not keep fully informed about the precise situation at the front during offensives. However, the size of the armies during the war necessitated the leaders being far back from the line in order to facilitate contact with units all along the front. Any closer, and it would have been difficult for a Haig or a Joffre to properly communicate with everybody. It was the job of their subordinates to be concerned with their specific areas of the front, and on the Somme, that subordinate was General Rawlinson. He was the commander of the British Fourth Army. He had a good reputation and is generally well thought of by historians. Before the war, he had been part of the Roberts Ring, which we discussed in a bit of detail on the Patreon episodes on cavalry. Basically, the Roberts Ring was a group of military officers before, during, and after the Boer War that was under the leadership of General Roberts. Roberts generally looked out for the other officers' promotions, and they generally accepted his leadership This allowed many of them to get into leading positions in the British army and government, especially once Roberts became the last British commander-in-chief. Rawlinson's connections and his general ability had allowed him to be named the commander, uh, the commandant of the Staff College from 1904 to 1907, and it also meant that by 1916 he was in charge of one of the British armies on the Western Front, the Fourth Army, which would play the biggest part in the coming offensive. Over the course of two years, the British Army had went from about 500,000 men, evenly divided between active full-time soldiers and part-time territorials, to an army of 1.25 million men in the field. This massive expansion had begun when Lord Kitchener asked for 100,000 volunteers after the war started. This would be followed by other requests for sets of 100,000 volunteers, as it became apparent that the war would not be over in a month. Here is a colonel of the 7th Green Howards discussing those early days. Quote, Nobody who had anything to do with the raising of Kitchener's army 
will ever forget August and September 1914, when vast hosts of men without officers, without NCOs, without uniforms, arms, camp equipment, rations, tents, or anything except for the clothes that they stood in, were assembled in open spaces called camps, and there embodied as units of the British Army. End quote. This outpouring of volunteers was great for the British Army and something that they desperately needed. And these early volunteers were given some perks for their enthusiasm. The one that is most important to our story is the fact that when men volunteered together, they were given the option of serving together. This created the infamous chums or pals battalions that are so intimately tied to the story of the Somme. These battalions were often made up of around 800 men, and these men were often from the same village or the same neighborhoods in larger cities. They would also make up a large number of the troops that would be used on July the 1st. In hindsight, the problem with this method of organization seems obvious. When these units went into attack, and some of them would end up being straight up massacred, the burden of the war hit some communities and neighborhoods extremely hard. With all of their eggs in one basket, when that basket was dropped, some areas lost almost their entire young male population. As a whole, these units of volunteers were referred to as Kitchener Divisions, and the Somme would be their first large-scale action. They had been given somewhere around nine months of training in Britain, and then they had spent the next six to twelve months in France receiving more instruction. For many, there had been time to send them to a quiet sector of the front to give them at least some experience in the trenches. While these divisions made up a good portion of the troops of the 4th Army, there were also a number of regular and territorial divisions from before the war. But by this point, these divisions were sort of regular in name only. The normal system of replacements had broken down, and the divisions had to be filled with raw recruits straight from the training depots that had little more experience than the Kitchener men. The one benefit of these regular and territorial units was that they generally had at least some core of experienced men, and more importantly, officers, even if their numbers had been greatly reduced. This sort of solid core simply did not exist in the Kitchener divisions. There is generally a lot said, and I guess I just spent a few minutes on it as well, about the inexperience of the infantry. But it's also equally important that the artillery was just as inexperienced, it had grown proportionally even more than the infantry, and its role had greatly expanded from before the war. We will take way more time to talk about the artillery next week, but it's something to keep in mind, especially when it came to firing after the attack started, when there was not months and months to prepare for the scenarios that the guns found themselves in. While the troops were not very experienced, there was a hell of a lot of them, and Haig would have at his disposal 20 divisions for the attack, and two-thirds of them would be put under the command of Rawlinson in his 4th Army. This represented half a million men when the artillery and support troops were taken into account. In most histories, after the level of experience of the troops is discussed, the next topic is almost always a conversation and a criticism of the tactics used by the British in the attack. On the surface, I'll admit it does look pretty bad. The decisions about how to carry forward the attacks were driven by the fact that the commanders did not believe that their troops were sufficiently trained and conditioned to be able to execute any complex attacking maneuvers. 
This meant that they were generally instructed to move out from their lines in relatively straight lines and relatively compact groups. Now, we're not talking about Russian guards here where they're 20 deep, but, you know, reasonably compact. The hope was that the lines moving forward, when one line was stopped, the next would move forward and carry the attack on. This was not that unfamiliar to us, and it is similar to what the French, Russians, and Italians were doing in most of 1915. However, it is not what those countries were doing in 1916. The men were also weighed down by about 66 pounds of kit, and this included everything that they would need when they had executed the attack, including extra ammunition and food. So yeah, that that sounds pretty bad, right? A bunch of weighed-down men barely struggling slowly across no man's land. However, while this demonstrates the worst areas of the attack, these were not the tactics used by all of the troops along the front. In many areas, the units did not just wait in their trenches until zero hour, but instead crept forward in the darkness to get as close to the Germans as possible before the official beginning of the attack. Also, in many areas, the men moved forward much faster than just a walk. They basically moved as fast as they could. And even in those areas where the men did move forward slowly, at a walk basically, they were supposed to be protecting artillery fire. There was supposed to be a rolling barrage in front of them that kept the Germans from being able to fire back. If the men moved too fast, they thought they would be running into their own artillery. Now, the fact that the coordination between the infantry and the artillery was just not there is a problem, but that does not change the fact that following the artillery closely was a wise strategy if it could have been executed. It just wasn't. I say these things to try and convince you to try and forget about all the things you've heard about the battle before and to let the actions speak for themselves once we get into them in a few episodes. I know there's a lot of preconceived notions about what happened on July the 1st. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story.
One interesting feature of the First World War battlefield was the resurgence of mining as a common tactic used by the attackers. For the attack on the Somme, there would be a million pounds of explosive used in various underground mines that would be set up before the attack began. These had been created by special mining units, made up mostly of men who had been miners before the war had started. They had a very special set of skills, and their experience was invaluable for the army. On the Somme, the mines were mostly targeted at various German strongholds. One of these was the Hawthorne Redoubt, which was targeted by a mine that was about 75 feet below the surface and at the end of a thousand-foot-long tunnel. One interesting feature of the ground at the Somme was that it was hard and chalky, and this made it really easy and stable to dig in, as I mentioned in the last episode when discussing the German defensive positions. However, it also made it very difficult for the miners to dig quietly. Since the Germans were trying to find the British tunnels and put a stop to the digging, silence was critical. So they had to find a solution to the problem of digging quietly. The solution that they came up with was that they would soak the chalk in water and then slowly pry off chunks from it very slowly. This took a long time and made the digging rate only about half a foot a day but it was really the only way that it could be accomplished. Here is Norman Dillon of the 178th Tunneling Company, discussing his turn at listening for the Germans while he was at the end of the tunnel. Quote, You had to listen to what the Germans were doing. You had to outsmart them. You had listening posts deep down in the chalk. I took my turn in listening. Setting down in the bowels of the earth, listening for what was going on, you had primitive listening instruments, electrified earphones, and you could easily hear people tapping away a long distance through the chalk. Then, if you listened carefully, if they were making a chamber to put the explosive charge in, you could hear a much more hollow noise of digging. Following that, you would hear the sinister sliding of bags of explosives into the chamber. Following that, you got out. End quote. Even though all of this effort was put into the tunneling and mining, it was thought that it was just a backup plan. The artillery would take care of everything, and the infantry would just roll over things. These mines were just an insurance policy. Now, the last topic we will dig into before we look at the British plans, and it is what many consider to be a boring one, logistics. Logistics are incredibly important especially when getting ready to launch a massive offensive. The task of arranging everything fell on the staff officers of all of the units, and they created, processed, and distributed a mountain of paperwork. This included documents on larger concerns, like what kinds of railways would be needed to supply the offensive. It was calculated that the 4th Army would need 14 trains of ammunition, 11 trains of supplies, and 6 trains for reinforcements and miscellaneous equipment. So that's about 31 trains a day. It was also estimated that once the attack got rolling, this would probably jump up to at least 70 trains a day. This meant that a huge effort had to be put into improving the railways and roads behind the front, just to make sure that this amount of supplies could be transported forward at all. Not only did they need to worry about getting the supplies to the front, but they also had to worry about housing the troops and getting them used to the area. This would be supplemented by maps of the areas of the front that each unit would be attacking, but the maps would not be handed out until right before the attack. 
What the troops really needed was time in the line to see the lay of the ground themselves. This meant that the troops had to be housed close behind the front, especially in the last few weeks before the attack. They basically took over entire villages and wooded areas and turned them into tent and hut cities. Then there were the added problems of trying to find time to move the units to the front, let them stay for a bit, and then bring them back to their camps. This becomes very problematic when you consider the fact that a single brigade took up three miles of roads when marching, and if two brigades met at a crossroads, it would be a serious traffic jam for hours. When not in the lines, the men would spend their time practicing and rehearsing their attacks against dummy trenches. To facilitate this and other large projects, there had to be over a hundred miles of water pipes laid down, and hundreds of new wells dug to try and get water to the men. However, the water situation paled in comparison to the concern and thought given to communications. Communication breakdowns had been a huge problem for every major attack of every major army during the entire war, and to try and facilitate communications after the infantry went forward, the British had a few different plans. The first, of course, was telephones, and for this purpose, 7,000 miles of telephone lines were buried to connect the front line to the rear areas. All of these were buried to try and protect them from German artillery fire. Even if this did not prove to be enough, telephones were just the primary method of communication. Groups of signalers would be sent forward with almost every wave of infantry, and they would be reeling out cable as they went, and also carrying signal lamps, and a black and white disc for Morse code, and even semaphore flags with them. Even this was thought to be insufficient, and colored flares were passed out to the officers and NCOs of the leading units, and they were instructed in their use. These flares all had different meanings based on the colors. They could tell the artillery to stop firing. They could tell the artillery to fire. They could just signal the unit's location. So all of these ways were sort of put in place to try and make sure that some method of communication was held between the front and the rear. Finally, we arrive at the plan. Or close. First, let's talk about what Haig thought the goals for the attack were. It's important to understand that question, to understand what he was thinking before we look at the exact plans that were created and how they evolved over time. Haig, in short, still believed that a huge breakthrough that would end the war was possible. He thought that the men and materiel that he now had massed behind the front had the ability not just to push the Germans back, but to decisively rend the front in two. This would then allow not only infantry, but cavalry to go through the gap and sweep to the either side. This was very reminiscent of the hopes for the Western Front offensives of 1915, and Haig still would not let them go. However, this view was not shared by Rawlinson. He believed, like Falkenheim and the French generals, that a breakthrough was simply not possible anymore. He favored a slow, bite-and-hold sort of attack that would give the British less impressive gains to start with, but would create more certain and consistent progress. This clash of views would never be fully resolved, as we will be very evident as we discuss how the plan for the attack came into being and how it evolved before July the 1st. No plan survives first contact. I feel like as a podcast that covers a military topic, I'm somehow contractually obligated to say that every few months, so 
That box is checked, and I don't have to say it again until next year. That saying is discussed so much, and is generally 100% accurate. However, the process of developing a plan, and the theory behind it, and the changes that are made to it before it's put into action, is always interesting and enlightening. For the psalm, the plan detailed the action down to the minute, with precise positions for every unit that they needed to reach described down to the meter for every minute. It was thought that this was the only way to allow the proper level of coordination between the artillery and the infantry. But where did the planning start? Well, the first draft for the attack was produced by Rawlinson and his staff before the beginning of April. This plan, when looking back, actually seems pretty realistic. This was because when Rawlinson had toured the battlefield, he had noticed that the British could see quite clearly most of the German first-line positions. They were up on the high ground. This would make it quite easy to neutralize and capture them. However, beyond that, he wanted to be very cautious with what he tried to do. The final plan that came out of the initial phase would be an attack by 10 divisions on a front 18 kilometers wide. Rawlinson planned a bite-and-hold offensive, with the first attack aiming strictly to take the first set of trenches, which meant that his infantry would have to advance a maximum of 2,000 yards. After this line was taken, hopefully costing the Germans a significant number of men, a break would be taken, and during this break the guns would be brought forward, casualties would be replaced, and everything would be prepared for the next step. Rawlinson firmly believed that this was the correct course of action, mostly because the British could not see the second German line, which was quite distant from the first and in fact only the larger British artillery pieces could reach it at all, since it was outside of the range of many of the field guns. Even before he submitted this plan to Haig on April the 3rd, Rawlinson knew that Haig probably would not like it. He would write in his diary that, quote, I dare say I shall have a tussle with him over the limited objective, for I hear he is inclined to favor the unlimited with the, change, with the chance of breaking the German line, end quote. And in this assessment, he was definitely not wrong. When Haig was shown the plan, he found its goals to be completely insufficient. Even after he would convince Rawlinson to double his planned objectives, he would still say that, quote, I studied Sir Henry Rawlinson's proposals for attack. His intention is merely to take the enemy's first and second system of trenches and kill Germans. He looks upon the gaining of three or four kilometers more or less of ground and material. I think we can do better than this. I'm aiming to get as large a combined force of French and British across the Somme and fighting the enemy in the open. End quote. Haig was adamant that the second set of trenches be included in the first set of objectives and that they be captured in the opening effort. His goal was, of course, to kill some Germans along the way as well, but he had believed that the best way to do this was not to slowly grind out advances, but instead to punch through the entire series of defenses in one go. Only in this way could the battle be pushed out into the open field. Now, when I got to this point in my research, I was a bit confused about why this distinction really mattered. So what if he wanted the infantry to go that far? They would only go as far as they could go. So why did extending the goals really matter if they're not going to achieve those goals anyway? Well, just like in many of our discussions, it all comes down to artillery. 
the British had a finite number of artillery pieces available to them, and for those guns they had a finite amount of ammunition. But extending the depth of the objectives meant that the British had to spend artillery ammunition and time and guns preparing those positions for the attack. This meant that as the goals got further and further away, the density of fire available for the first line got lower and lower. Every single shell that was fired into the German second line or in an area of the front in, in front of it was one less shell that could be laid down on the first line of trenches. When Haig's response came back to Rawlinson, he did not agree with Haig's assertions and his optimism. He continued to argue that it was impractical to try and push for the second line. After a considerable amount of back and forth, Rawlinson requested that he be given the order to extend the attack in writing, and only then would he include it in his planning. At some point, it just became one of those situations where, even though he did not agree with it, Haig was Rawlinson's superior, and there was only so much that he could do. This was not the end of the discussions about the goals for the attack, and at some point in June, there were discussions about extending the goals of the opening attack even further, to the point where Dois was starting to be mentioned, and it was 70 miles behind the front. These were just fever dreams that did not end up being implemented, but it's crazy that it was even being discussed. The one thing that Rawlinson would not budge on was that if he had to try and take both lines in the first attack, he wanted at least five days of bombardment. This went against Haig's initial wishes because he wanted a short bombardment, but Rawlinson would win this argument, and the bombardment would be planned for about five days in length. Next episode, we will talk all about these artillery preparations as we prepare for the week-long artillery bombardment before the infantry attack on July the 1st. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next episode.